kids. If you'd like to go downstairs, we have a kids service available. Or, you're, of course, you're always welcome to stay up here. just want to say welcome to those that are visiting today here for the first time. We, uh, we're glad that you chose to, to worship with us today and to uh, be part of our family. We're, uh, we don't have membership here, so if you attend, you're a member, and if you don't, you're not. So uh, it's real simple. So we, um, we are happy to have you here today, and we're here to magnify the name of Jesus. We're here to make him, I saw Jay had a, a shirt on, so make Jesus famous. Well, he's, he's already famous, but we're going to do our best to exalt him and make his name known today. So I want to, uh, I, I just really over the last two weeks, I didn't preach last week, Seth did, Kristen and I were, we were, uh, we're oh, we were in Florida. And you think it's hot here, it was really, really hot in Florida last week. Uh, the, of course, the heat waves hit everywhere, the, the uh, humidity was, was unbearable, but we got to do a little fishing, um, and I don't mean from shore, I mean we went out and did some deep sea fishing. And this was like, you know, sometimes it's called fishing, and sometimes it's called catching. This was, this was catching. Because every time, I'm not lying, every time we dropped line, we went out to this reef seven miles from the shore, and every time we dropped line, we got a bite. Like, it, it's like, it never happens like that. And what was even better, the captain of the ship, he baited my hook. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can bait a hook, just for those that are wondering, I can bait a hook. I grew up fishing. Uh, but he would put the little fish on the hook, throw it in there. I'd pull up a bigger fish. He'd put it under his arm, take it off, rebait the hook, back in the water. It was just like bam, bam, bam. We had, uh, we had our daily limit by 10 a.m. in the morning uh, for the whole boat. And it was just Kristen and I and another couple. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it was really an enjoyable time. So that was fun. But while I was on the boat, you know, we, uh, something had been stirring in my heart for the last few weeks about anchors. And, and even, as, uh, even as we were in the boat, you know, we had an anchor down. We went out to the, this reef, and there were other boats there fishing the same place. And, of course, we threw an anchor down. And we think about an anchor. What's the purpose of an anchor? The anchor kind of keeps you in a fixed, fixed position, Right? It kind of keeps you safe. It keeps you secure. You're not like, like the worst thing would be to bump into another boat when you're fishing. That would not be a good thing. Uh, but a lot of times, even in a storm, you know, an anchor will keep you safe. And so we, uh, you know, we were in a boat and a storm came up. And fortunately, it was perfect timing because as soon as we got our daily limit, the storm came up and the guy said, do you want to keep fishing? We're like, no, we're good. So we, uh, we hightailed it back to shore. I didn't get sick, which was the first time, so that was a good thing. And I, as a kid, I always got seasick on these type of boats. But, yeah, it was real good. So I really started thinking about anchors. And I, I want to I look at two passages today. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 6, and then we're going to read. I'm gonna, just going to give you, like, spoiler alert. Are you guys ready? A spoiler alert. We have a long text to read. We're going to le- read a story from Acts 27. And I've reduced a few verses out of it just for uh, the length of time. But I really want you to hear the whole story. So Hebrews chapter 6 and Acts 27. And, and here's what I really see uh, uh, going on. In, in Hebrews 6, we're going to see that there is an anchor. 
And it talks about that the hope that we have in Jesus is an anchor that enters behind the veil. And that what he's done and what he did for us, we talked about earlier, that, that he entered the most holy place with his blood once and for all time, obtained eternal redemption for us. And it said that that hope, the hope that we have him, that he, was our, he is our high priest. And it says that hope is an anchor for our souls. However, what I see a lot of times is, have you ever seen a boat that was, that was tied with two different ropes? Like, the one keeps it from going this way, and the other keeps it from going that way. And what I see a lot of times is, even though we have some hope anchored in heaven, we have other things that we put down anchors on earth. And there's this kind of tied to heaven, tied to earth, simultaneously, and all of a sudden we don't really do anything and we don't go anywhere. And so it's that I want to look at today. I've titled the, the message, Cut the Anchors. Cut the Anchors. And you notice this anchors plural, so we'll talk about what a couple of those anchors might be. But there's one anchor we want to keep, but the rest of them we want to cut. So if you would, uh, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read from the uh, NASB for Hebrews 6 and the new uh, King James from, uh, from Acts 27. Oh, yeah, I guess I should tell you that the, the, we're going to talk about hope today. Anybody need a little more hope? I see a lot of heads shaking. See, here's the thing that, and I'll just, if I say the, if I say the Apostle Paul, forgive me, I, I kind of believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. If you don't agree, I don't care. Have your own opinion. Uh, but whoever wrote Hebrews, um, he talks about here about having a, not just hope, but having a full assurance of hope, which tells me there's a difference. So why would he bother talking about having a full assurance of hope? What's hope? Hope is having a confident expectation of a future good. That I'm expecting today that something that's going to happen in the future is going to turn out good. And he says, I want you to have full assurance of hope. You ever ask anybody this? Full assurance means to be completely certain. You ever ask anybody, they tell you something, and you say, are you sure about that? And they go, well, yeah. And yeah is more of a question than an answer. Yeah. Guess what they're not? Yeah, they're not sure. They don't know. Or I, I do this, so I'm guilty of this. Somebody says, are you sure about that? It's usually Phil, because Phil's our, our resident fact checker. Uh, we call him Pastor Fact Checker. And he'll say, are you sure about that? And I'll say, well, I'm 99% sure. Like, is that even possible? Like, are you 99% pregnant? No, you either are or you aren't. So you're either sure or you're not sure. And he says, I want you to have full assurance. I want you to be completely certain. I want you to be 100% confident that what's going to happen is going to happen, and that it's going to be good when it's all over. And I want you to have full assurance to the end. See, what happens a lot of times, we're like, we leave church and we're all, man, our faith is here. 
and we have hope, and we have faith in the thing that we're hoping for, and then what happens? And then a few, life happens, yeah, life happens. And he says, I not only want you to be completely certain, I not only want you to be fully, have full assurance of hope, but I want you to have it all the way, when? To the end. And so he says, I don't want you on a roller coaster of hope. See, if you don't have hope, you can't have faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so faith needs hope to grab onto. See, hope is the thing that you can't see. Hope is for something in the future. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, he says why would somebody hope for that which they already see? Like, if I can see it, why do I need to hope for it? And, and so, so hope, he says, but when you don't see it, you wait for it. There's a term people use a lot. Well, they say, wait for it. He says, you wait for it with perseverance. That there might be some things you've got to go through to get to the other side. And so he says here, he says, we desire that each one of you demonstrate. Demonstrate means to show by your words. If you look this word up, it means to show by your words and your actions. It says, we want you to demonstrate the same diligence so you realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be, let's just say, lazy. I don't want you to be lazy. I don't want you to be sluggish. This word also means stupid. Don't be stupid. He says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. He says, I need you to be, have full assurance all the way to the end. I need you to demonstrate it. And I want you to be imitators of those people who through faith and perseverance inherited the very thing that they were promised. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he says, I want you to imitate me as I do what? Imitate Christ. So it's important when he says, I want you to be imitators, it's important who we imitate. It's important who we, obviously we want to pattern our life off Jesus. But there should be some people in your life that you could look to who actually live a life of integrity, live a life of faith, that live a life that they've been through some stuff and they've, they've hung in there for a while. And they've probably been through it. And he says, I want you to imitate those people. And just in case, anybody know somebody like that? Been through some stuff. They waited. They persevered. And they inherited the very thing they were waiting for. So just in case you don't know somebody like that, he gives us an example. He said, in case you don't know one of them, there's Abraham. And in the next verse, he says this, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself. So two things we're going to see later. It says that there's two things God did. First, he makes a promise. He makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He makes a promise later in Genesis, a few chapters later. And it says when he could swear by no one else, he swore by himself. He actually makes an oath using his own name. Because it's not like as if it's not enough for God to say, I promise I'll do this. Then he comes back later and puts an oath on it and says, oh, by the way, not only do I promise it, but I swear on my own name that I'm going to do it. He says, when he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. That's what he says to Abraham. So having patiently waited, now there's an interesting word, patiently waited. So a lot of times we can wait for it, but guess what we're not? 
<laughs> I'll wait, but I don't want to. The word patiently waited actually is a Greek word. Uh, it comes from two words, macro and thumos. It means long-tempered. That doesn't mean you have a temper for a long time, because then that would be me. Matter of fact, I, I, I played golf. Uh, I'm, matter of fact, I need to tell this story. Because I, I'm scared that this video is going to come back to haunt me. So I, I, just need to, I just need to preface this before Seth pulls one on me. I haven't played golf in five years. I've never played golf as a pastor. You know where I'm going. I haven't played golf in five years because of my back, but when I did play golf, you wouldn't know I would have been a pastor by the way that I didn't really demonstrate by my words and actions. I did very good. Let's just say I passed the test. But there was one hole. One hole. It's like the eighth hole. I only played nine holes. I swing. The ball goes about six inches. Ah, beating the club on the ground for the first time ever. And wouldn't you know, it was the only time all day that Seth, I look back, he's in the cart videoing it. <laughs> laughing. So just in case that video ever pops up, I, I just want to preface it. I, I'm, I'm still working on being long-tempered. But actually... Uh, the word long temper is more than not just losing your temper. It's about not allowing your passions and attitude and emotion to control the way that you wait. So anger is obviously a big one, but that when we wait, we do it in such a way that we don't allow our passions and emotions to control us through that process. And it says, having patiently waited, he obtained a process or promise. We know Abraham, he waited some 25 years for Isaac. Right? That even though, and, and then Abraham's, although he saw the fulfillment of Isaac, he didn't see the fulfillment of in 400 years, you know, I'll bring your people out, out of Egypt. He didn't see that. He didn't see in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. But he patiently endured to the end. And a lot of times what we think is, you know, Abraham waits 25 years. I got to tell you this, that God's timing is always perfect. Because a lot of times while we're patiently waiting, while we're waiting for the thing to, to happen that we've, we're believing for and, and have prayed for, a lot of time goes by. And here's something, I don't know that this is scripture, uh, but I could say it's probably a true statement. Can I say it? Just something I've noticed is the longer the period of time the less the hope. That the longer somebody, something continues to occur, the tendency is our hope, as time increases, hope decreases. And I was at a, um, I was at Grace Place a few months ago. They had a guy named Dan Moeller there. Uh, great, great teacher. I was there on a Saturday. And he said one thing, it really stuck with me. He says, since when do we allow time to have power over God's promises? And it stuck with me because that's what happens a lot of times. As things go longer without seeing the manifestation of the promise, we begin to allow time 
to diminish our hope and actually allow time to have power over top of what God's promise is. He says it shouldn't be. See, a lot of times we, we, we think we have a better timing than God, but even in, in Abraham, where Abraham had to wait 25 years, think about this. What if God had given Abraham Isaac sooner in life, fulfilled the promise sooner? When Abraham sent his servant out to find Isaac's wife, who would be Rebekah, had Isaac been born sooner, Rebekah probably would have been too young to get married. And so sometimes what we don't see is God sees like eternity, right? And he realizes that if he fulfills the promise and the thing happens today, that something else won't occur later on that's probably more important. And so although those 25 years that Abraham had to wait, by the time that Isaac was old enough to need a wife, Rebecca had been born and God was able to send his servant, or Abraham sent his servant out to find Rebecca, and the timing was perfect. But a lot of times we don't realize that. Verse 16 says this. It says, For when people swear by an oath by one greater than themselves, and when with them an oath serving as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So basically, like, when you make an oath, it eliminates argument, right? So that's what God did. He made a promise, and he backed it up with an oath. He said, In the same way, God desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of promise. Everybody say, I'm an heir. I'm an heir. You're an heir. If you're a born-again Christian, you're an heir. He said, God wanting to demonstrate to the heirs of promise the fact that his purpose is what? Unchangeable. The King James Version would say immutable. His purpose is his will or his counsel. When Paul said, I declared unto you the whole counsel of God, it's the same word. So what he's saying is, is not that God's, as I spoke two weeks ago, not that God's purpose or will or plan always comes to pass because we have a freedom to choose within that, but that his purpose, plan, and will actually doesn't change. There's a difference. And this is said that the purpose of God, the purposes of God are unchangeable or they're immutable. Anybody ever take physics? Autumn says no. <laughs> All right. Anybody ever hear of Newton's, uh, Newton's laws of motion? Oh, okay. So you've taken physics. Okay. One of Newton's laws of motion says this, says a body at rest will what? Stay at rest or a body in motion will stay at motion unless acted on by some external force. Right? So if I put that Bible right there on the floor, and I come back in an hour, guess where it's going to be? Are you sure? Why are you sure about that? It's Because <laughs> yeah, it's Newton's law. Unless somebody comes in and does this. But as long as nobody or nothing touches that, it's not moving. Because it's an immutable law. It's a law that doesn't change. And what happens a lot of times, we have more faith in Newton's immutable laws than we do God's immutable purposes. See, actually, wasn't it God that invented the law of motion? Newton didn't invent it. He just discovered it. And so for some reason, we can put more, more faith in, in physics. Well, it's an immutable law. It must not change. Well, God's purposes are immutable. God's purposes are unchangeable. 
the purpose and plan he had for you a billion years ago, still the purpose he has for you today. That purpose hasn't changed. The purpose that he has for you today will be the purpose he has for you next week, next year. His purposes don't change. He confirmed it with an oath. Next verse, 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, so those two things are this, it's the promise and the oath, and he can't lie in either case, so he can't lie. If he can't lie, it has to come true. Uh, It's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to do what? Hold firmly to the hope that is set. Where is it set? That's important. Because we're going to look what that hope is. The hope is set before us. But what happens a lot of time is we look for hope around us. See, the hope around us won't, won't get you where you're going. The hope before us will. And in verse 19, he says this. He says, the hope that is set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable, and one that enters within the veil where Jesus has entered a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's a whole other message. Maybe we'll talk about Melchizedek one day, but just tuck it in the back of your brain for now. But he says, the hope that we have, the hope that's before us, is an anchor for what? Your soul. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you become a new creation, you have a new spirit. Your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotion, it says that the the hope that lays before us is what you anchor your soul with. Your thoughts get anchored there. Your emotions get anchored there. Your decisions get anchored there. See, what happens, we're looking for anchors here. And the anchors here will actually hold you back. See, can you see the difference that if I have an anchor up there, it's taking me, where, what's it doing? It's lifting me up. If I have an anchor here, what's it doing? It's holding me down and pulling me back. Anybody ever watch Bear Grylls? All right, so what was this? Uh, what's that guy's actor's name? If I, if I say the movie, you're going to hate me. Um, American Sniper or uh, uh, Hangover. <laughs> uh, what was that actor that was in that? Bradley Cooper. Yeah, and you guys never watched that movie, I'm sure. But <laughs> So Bradley Cooper is on this thing with Bear Grylls. It's like something in the wild Bear Grylls. So Bear takes him out for a day. And in one day, shows him all the things he needs to do. And then the second day, Bradley has to replicate that and get to bear. So one of the things they have to do is there's this 100-foot chasm, like this big dip that you'll die. I'm sorry, it's 100 foot across. It's about three or 400 feet deep. So Bear, he gets this grappling hook on this gun, and he shoots it. And it goes over on the other side, and he gives a little tug and says, okay, Bradley, go across. And Bradley said this. He said, there's there's one of those moments where you just have to step out in faith. Now, I don't think Bradley's a Christian. At least, you know, I don't know, but I'd say he's probably not. But that's, that's the kind of hook that I'm seeing, is that it's up there and it's pulling me towards something, as opposed to something that's down here that's keeping me held back. 
And he says, the hope that we have is a place that anchors my thinking, it anchors my thoughts, it anchors my emotions, it anchors my decisions. This hope actually goes behind the veil, the place that Jesus went with his own blood, applied it to the mercy seat, and literally took care of every need that would ever be, be experienced for the rest of, of time on earth. That's my hope. That's the thing I anchor into. And that's what he wants you to anchor into. All right, so I want to read this story to you, Acts chapter 27. That's our kind of backdrop. Now, I don't normally do this, and this is a lengthy passage, but there's something in here I really want to get to. So, you guys with me? All right, so I'll kind of set the stage. So, Paul, uh, he had been arrested by the Jewish leaders, and they didn't like, you know, the message he was preaching, etc. So, they, uh, they take him to the governor. They take him to Felix. And Felix tries him. Felix doesn't want to deal with it. And then he dies, and his replacement comes in, Festus. And then Festus hears it. Festus doesn't really want to do anything with his case. And, and Paul, early on, he had done what's called he appealed to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, you could make this appeal to have your case heard by Caesar in Rome. And so even so, Felix hears his case. Festus hears his case. Uh, King Agrippa and his wife, I think her name was Bernice, they come and visit Festus. And even King Agrippa hears Paul's case. And at the end of chapter 26, King Agrippa says to Festus, he says, this man could be set free had he not appealed to Caesar. And so Paul, had he not actually made this appeal to go to Caesar, he could have gone free at that point. But he didn't. And so what happens is they put him on this ship. The ship's probably leaving Israel. I'd say like Caesarea is probably where they got on the ship at. And they put him on this ship with... uh, uh, actually, a couple friends with, with it. If you read the beginning of uh, Acts 27, Dr. Luke, who was writing this book, he wrote the book Acts. Luke was on this ship. He had another friend called Aristarchus is on the ship with him. And it says that Paul is put under the, the guard of a, uh, a centurion. And this centurion is in charge of Paul and some other prisoners. And they get on this ship and they take off for Rome. Well, this is the first of two ships. So the first ship they get, they get about, I don't know, let's just say, a third or a fourth of the way, and they end up to, I think a city was called Myra. And it said from there, they get on a different ship. And this was an Alexandrian ship. So it came from Alexandria, Egypt. It's carrying wheat, and it's going to carry wheat and grain all the way to Rome. So they switch ships, and they get on that ship. And then they sail a little bit farther, and they get to the island of Crete. And at Crete, they end up at this, this town called Fairhaven. Now, if you had to pick a place to live, like that sounds like a nice, gentle place to live, Fairhaven. And, and, and so they're at Fairhaven, and Paul tells us, he says, hey, what they want to do, so Fairhaven's kind of like a, a, a pohick town, I guess you might say. There's not a whole lot going on there. It's not a good place to, to hole up for the winter. What they want to do is they want to find a place to winter. And, and they said, well, we're just going to go around the island of Crete, about 45 miles over to a city called Phoenix, and we're going to winter there. And Paul says, you know what? Not a good idea. It's late in the year. Uh, I've been here before. I've been to this party. And Paul was in three shipwrecks prior to this. So he had a little experience, right? So Paul says, you know what? Just from my own personal experience, probably not a good idea to, to go sailing this time of the year. And early in the chapter, it says, but the majority listened or didn't listen to Paul. So they're like, you know what? No, we're going to make it on around the island. We're going to go to Phoenix. And so this little 40, think of like Gilligan's Island, right? Uh, They were supposed to go on like a three-hour tour. 
Well, the three-hour tour turned into a 14 days in the dark. And, and that's kind of where we're going to pick up the story today. So what happens is they're trying to go just under the Iowa Creek to hit Phoenix, and the storm rises up and literally pushes them out to sea. And the ship they're on, this they're like a real big, sturdy ship. It's a grain ship. It's got one kind of big mast in the middle and one on the front, but it's not a sailing ship. So it's not a ship where they could really catch the wind a certain way and, and do that. It had On the back, it had two big oars coming out the side. You know, so, so it would catch wind, and then the guys in the bottom would row, and that's how they'd, they'd go. So, but if the wind was like obstinate or contrary or really strong, this ship's just going to go its own way. And that's what happens. Okay, so here we are. Verse 14. That's just a little background. It says, But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon, uh, what we would call a northeaster. So imagine like a really big northeaster uh, hitting. And it says, When the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. So that's like the little boat, the dinghy that would hang off the side. They brought it up and, and tied it down. And... It said, when they had taken it on board, they used the cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were driven. So what they did, they took these cables and actually pulled them under the, underneath the ship to hold it together so that the, the waves tossing it back and forth wouldn't pull it apart. And verse 18 says, and because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed on the next day, they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. That's essentially not like fishing tackle. That would be their, the equipment. So, you know, it's getting bad. Three days in, they're pitching the equipment overboard. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, get this, all hope that we would be saved was given up. So in Hebrews 6, he talks about, I want you to have full assurance of hope to the end. And here they are, three days into a storm. And it was so bad, they threw the tackle overboard, they threw some other things overboard, they lightened the ship. It said it got so bad in three days that all hope of us being saved was given up. See, they're on this roller coaster of hope. They set out sail, they're going to a destination, and next thing you know, they hit a storm. And a few days in, the storm gets so bad, all hope is gone. It says, but after a long abstinence from food, Paul stood up in the midst of them and said, man, you should have listened to me. This is what everybody needs, a, a know-it-all, right? You should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred the disaster. We're going to come back here to what Paul says after we read this. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, whom I belong to and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And of course, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near to land. And they took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, or that would be 120 feet. And they went gone a little farther, and they took some more soundings and found it to be 15 fathoms, or 90 feet. 
And then fearing, lest they should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern. We're going to come back to that. And prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense, putting out anchors from the prow or, or bow of the ships. Here's what it is. So what do they do? It says that they went to the back of the ship and put down four anchors, right? And then the sailors go to the front of the ship and pretend like they're putting down more anchors. But what they do is they take that skiff and they put it over the edge. It's like, <laughs> we're out of here. And so they actually try to escape the ship and get away from everybody else. Well, Paul sees that and says, as the sailors, verse 30, were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff the anch- under pretense of putting out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. So the soldiers who previously wouldn't listen to Paul, now Paul says, hey, if these guys leave, we're all dead. And so what do the soldiers do? See you, dinghy. They cut the ropes. While those guys are trying to get in, it cut the ropes and let that thing fall into the ocean. It says, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. Verse 33, and as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival. Not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And all in all, there were 276 persons on the ship. So, so this wasn't a little ship. We got you know, 276 people on here. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw the wheat out into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where the two seas meet, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So they essentially drove the ship into land, and the stern stuck fast into the, into the beach, into the land. And the back, the waves were so bad, it said the stern of the boat actually got demolished. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and go to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So they're on what we find in the next chapter, what they're on is what's called the island of Malta. They're only halfway to where they're, or actually they're closer to Sicily, Italy. They're not quite there yet, but they're on this island. And had they missed this island, they would have just shot on past it. Probably would not have made it. So what Paul does, he, he stands up and he says to them, hey, there's not going to be any loss of life. It looks bad. We've been 14 days, no sun, no moon, no stars. It's been pitch black. You've been in this situation for two weeks now but there's not going to be any loss of life. And here's what, as I'm reading through this, what what it really stuck out to me this week is a lot of times that we want the promise, but we don't want to go through the process. 
So the promise is what? There's not going to be any loss of life on this ship. Not one hair from anybody's head will fall. Everybody will make it to land. Who wants to sign up for that? Yeah. See, what happens is we hear a promise in God's word. We want the promise, and we should want the promise, but a lot of times we want the promise without going through the process that it takes to get to the promise. Look at the next slide. Here's what Paul says. Anybody ever hear of a poop-filled sandwich? If you haven't, I'll tell you what it is. It's something positive, something negative, and then something positive, and it makes it easier to eat. Paul didn't serve a poop-filled sandwich. He served an open-faced sandwich here. It was just something good topped with something bad. Here you go. A little bit different. I prefer to put a little sweet on the outside of both. But what's he say? He says, there's not going to be any loss of life among you. However, what? We must run aground on a certain island. Ooh, ooh, I want want to live, but but I don't want to run aground on an island. See, we're, we're quick to jump up for the promise. But I don't want to go through the promise, the process to get there. There's not going to be any loss of life. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, God didn't tell Paul which island. He just said a certain island. He said, but it's going to happen. And so if we look down at the response, then fearing, look what they were afraid of. Fearing we should run aground. Well, guess what they had to do? They had to run aground. Paul said there's not going to be loss of life. However, we've got to run aground but fearing they should run aground. Like they're actually scared of the very thing that's going to be lead to their deliverance. See, not everything in the Christian life is a bed of roses. I believe in the blessing of God. I believe in deliverance. I believe in freedom. I believe in righteousness and forgiveness and walking in of the blessing of God all day long. But you have an enemy of your soul that's out every day trying to to destroy you, trying to kill you, trying to take you out. And see, like, I wouldn't need challenges in life if it wasn't for you guys. I'd be the best version of the Apostle Paul if I lived alone. I'd be so like Christ if I didn't have people in my life. (laughs) You know? Right? Now, don't take that the wrong way, but it's, it's the truth. See, it's only through difficulties that actually God shapes our character and brings us to a higher level. I could be the biggest gospel kingdom guy all day long on a deserted island, but put me with ten people and I got issues. I need that. I need that because God is still working on me. It says that they ran it, that they fearing they should run aground. So what did they do? What did they do so they wouldn't run aground, which is the thing that needed to happen for them to receive the promise? 
they drop four anchors. See, what happens is we're looking for the anchors around us instead of the anchor before us. See, there's one anchor that we need to be anchored to, and it's the one that entered that Jesus, the forerunner, entered as our high priest ahead of us behind the veil. But what we do when we want the promise but don't want the rest of the process, we set down anchors. And what happens is we get stuck between two worlds. You're going to ask me what those anchors are, right? Of course you are. Well, I ask God just to give me a few common anchors. And I'll just give you a couple that I think, you know. And now, there were more than four anchors on the ship because the sailors went to the front of the ship and tried to put down more anchors. And then, so there, but they actually put four down. So I'll just give you four things that I think we do. I think one anchor we put down is our personal experience. Well, I've heard this before, and it didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. I was in a similar situation in the past, and what God's word, what I believe for, didn't happen. Therefore, I don't want to go through that again, so I'm just going to put an anchor down. And what happens a lot of times is we try to bring the promise of God down to our level of experience. Instead of taking, okay, maybe I didn't get it right, maybe it didn't work out, I don't know everything. Instead of taking our experience and raising that to the standard of God's word. Because God's word is immutable. It's unchangeable. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And but what we want to do, we want to change the word of God and the promise of God to fit in our convenient theology because something didn't work out one time. And so I don't want to go through that again. Therefore, I want to stick an anchor in the ground and stay here. Another one that I think we do is, well, that doesn't seem like a wise decision. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Conventional theology or conventional wisdom. It doesn't seem like a wise decision to go into the rocks. Any idiot would know that. What's the Bible say about conventional wisdom? James 3:15 says that the wisdom that does not descend from above is earthly, sensual, and demonic. That when I anchor my reasoning in the world, as opposed to anchoring my reasoning behind the veil, it's actually sensual. It doesn't mean sexual. It means sensual that it appeals to the senses. Like it makes sense in the natural. But it's also demonic. Guess who doesn't want you to go forward? The enemy. And so what we use under the guise of spirituality, we call conventional wisdom. What well, doesn't seem like a good idea, it doesn't seem like a wise idea, so I think I'll throw another anchor down. 
I think another anchor we use is popularity or not being popular. What will people think if I do this? I don't want to look like a idiot. I don't want to look like a Jesus freak. God forbid we offend somebody in today's culture. Right? We're so worried about popular opinion that it becomes an anchor in our life because I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to look like a moron. I don't want to look like, like I'm not intelligent. God forbid I have a little faith and do what God's word says. See, Paul was a man accustomed to going against the grain. He was the one on the boat that stood up and said, hey, we shouldn't sail. And it said the majority said, you're wrong, we're sailing. Guess who was right? When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, Galatians 2, it says when, when Peter came, there were certain, that, that used, certain people that used to eat with the Gentiles. But when Peter came, all of a sudden, ooh, we can't do that anymore because that's, you know, that's, uh, they're unclean. And it says that everybody, including Barnabas, was taken away in the hypocrisy. Even Paul's traveling companion got deceived into thinking that was okay. And Paul said, I withstood Peter to the face. Paul was a guy that actually stood up and stood for what was right, even when everybody else, even his own traveling companion at that time, got sucked away in hypocrisy. When Paul was on this boat, he said, man, it's been 14 days, you haven't eaten anything, it's time that you need to eat for your survival. So what did Paul do? He actually took food, it said he took food, he broke it, he blessed it, and he ate in front of them all. After he ate, they saw it, they were encouraged, and then they ate. Now you might think that's a little rude. Why would he eat in front of them? Sometimes people need somebody to lead the way so they can step into the very thing that God's calling them into also. See, everybody's sitting around waiting for somebody else to go first, but God's saying, I gave you the word. I need you to step up. I need you to break the bread. Show them it's okay. Take a little food, and all of a sudden, everybody else will get in some encouragement, and they'll be able to step into that very thing too. I think another anchor is identity in a bad way. Well, I guess this is just my lot in life. I guess just God just wants me to be sick the rest of my life. Remember Seth said last week about the children of Israel was never God's purpose for them to be in the, the wilderness for 40 years? I've, I've talked to people that have been going through a wilderness season for like 30 years. Well, I'm just going through the wilderness, brother. Well, get out of it. But see, what happens is people begin to identify with their issues so much so they don't want to come out of it because they don't know what they would do on the other side of it. This is how I, like, this is all I know. I only know what addiction looks like, so I'm going to put my anchor here because I don't know what freedom would be like. I don't know how I could respond to freedom. 
I've always been an adulterer, so I'll just stay there because I don't know what it looks like to be faithful. I don't know if I can do it. So what happens is when God has a better plan and purpose for you, you get stuck in the thing that you think is, his, is best because it's all you know. But His plan is so much better. See, I know people that don't want to get healed because if they got healed, they wouldn't have anything to complain about. God forbid I get healed and delivered because what would I say to Facebook? Oh my gosh, boy, my day sucks. Oh, oh man. <laughs> you know? I'm just throwing my anchor down here so I can get 3,000 likes about how bad life is. How about you pull that anchor up? So what's it say? It says that they... They feared lest they should run aground, so they dropped four anchors and did what? <laughs> Have you ever dropped an anchor and then prayed to spiritualize your disobedience, fear, and arrogance? That's a good question. That was a question God spoke to me this week. You ever know somebody like that? The way they make excuse for the anchors they put down, well, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. And all of a sudden, you know, all those things, locked in a bad identity, worrying about what's popular, conventional, all that. It's actually all a form of pride. I know more than God. I know better in this situation what to do than God does. God says, I want you to move forward. I'm staying put. And so what we do, we just sprinkle a little prayer over top of that. and I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the preacher. We don't have a choir. I don't know why I said that. Right? Because what we do is we want to do opposite of what God's calling us to do, and then we want to sprinkle some prayer on it and say, hey, God, bless what I want to do, instead of just walking out what he's called you to do. What did Paul say? Let's look at this quickly. Oh, gee, it was 10, 12 o'clock. Let's go. All right, we're going to wrap up. Next slide. It says, Paul said this, There stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, there's really important ports there. Paul realized that he belonged to God. And that word serve actually means in the form of worship. He worshiped God. He said, an angel comes by me that of the God that I belong, the God I serve, says, hey, I, I appreciate Paul writing this, or, or Luke writing this. Paul said it. Look what the angel said to Paul. Do not be what? Which means that Paul was... And when Luke wrote that all hope was lost that we, we, had, we lost all hope that we'd ever be. I believe Paul was in that. Paul didn't allow, though, that to control his decisions and actions in life. 
See, sometimes we do get scared, but what we can't do is allow fear to drive us to do what they did, which was put anchors down. See, what Paul did, here comes along this angel of the Lord and says, you must be brought before Caesar. See, if you look back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus appeared to Paul and said this, the same way that you've testified me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. So he had a promise from Jesus in Acts 23 in an appearance of Jesus that he would go to Rome. And so what happens a lot of times when we get in the middle of a storm, what we need is a little reminder of the promise that was already spoken over our life. And that's what the angel does here to Paul. He says, hey, you already got a promise you're going to go to Rome, so what are you worried about? You got a promise. And he says, don't be afraid, you must go. And by the way, God has granted, that word means freely given, which tells me that Paul was not just praying for himself, he was actually praying for everybody on the ship with him, and the Lord says to him, I have freely granted you all the lives of everybody else on this ship. And so how often do we get in the middle of something and we just say, oh boy, if I can just get out of this? But the Apostle Paul is actually praying for everybody else in addition to himself so that they all actually make it there together. Next slide. He says this. He says, therefore, take heart. I believe God. Say that. I believe God that it will happen just as it was told to me. I believe God. I believe God. When God said it, I believe it. And that's where he anchored himself. It says that he said, I believe God. I'm anchored there. You're not going to pull me left, right, up, down. I'm anchored there. Because I believe what God said. And it's going to happen, one version says, exactly like it was told to me. So what'd they do? Here's what we need to do today. Cut, not jump off the boat. What did he say? <laughs> Stay on the boat. See, if you get off the boat, you're, you're, you're going to die. You got to stay on the boat. The boat's going to the shore, right? But what do they have to do? They said they cut the anchors off and left them where? In the sea. So I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what trial you're going through. I don't know what difficulty, decision, issue whatever it might be, but there's only one anchor that you need. There's one hope that you need. The hope that is set before us. The hope that is an anchor for our soul. The hope that keeps my thoughts anchored. The hope that keeps my feelings anchored. The hope that keeps my decisions anchored. So that when this stuff happens, like, I want the promise as much as anybody. But sometimes you got to patiently endure. Sometimes there's a process to go through. Don't put anchors down because you're fearful of what's going to be on the other side. You know what hope is? Remember I told you hope is confident expectation of a future good. So you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be scared. Because what Jesus has for you is always good. Every good gift and every perfect gift 
comes from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Like he never changes his mind. He never turns around. It's always good. And you can trust that. You can say with Paul, you can say, I believe God. I believe God. Let's pray.